This week, Bristow files term sheet with majority support of secured and unsecured creditors. PG&E unsecured bondholders seek to end debtor exclusivity in favor of own plan. Jorn's Healthcare files a prepack in Delaware. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York. And I'm Karen Lug. Later in the episode, our director of credit research, Mark Fisher, sits down with head of Reorg Covenants in the U.S., Peter Washkowitz, to discuss covenant trends in the primary markets. It's Sunday, June 30th. On Friday, Bristow filed the restructuring term sheet that had been previewed earlier in the week at the debtor's second day hearing. Terms of the deal reached between 89.8% of secured note holders and 54.5% of unsecured creditors include a $400 million rights offering funded 90% by unsecured note holders and 10% by secured note holders. Prior to dilution from the rights offering and a management incentive plan, unsecured notes would receive 100% of the reorganized equity. Secured note holders would have the option to receive their claims paid in full or at a rate of 98% plus the option to contribute in the rights. The ad hoc equity group was not party to the RSA. Under the term sheet, equity holders would have their interest canceled. The plan sets a plan and enterprise value of the reorganized debtors at $1.35 billion. That's $409 million below Bristow's debt total on the petition date. Earlier in the week, the debtors reached an agreement with the equity group that led to the group withdrawing their cash collateral objection and demand for an official committee. In exchange, the debtors would pay $200,000 per month toward the fees and expenses of the ad hoc equity group through September 30th. The PG&E bankruptcy cases saw action in and out of court last week. On Tuesday, PG&E's ad hoc committee of senior unsecured note holders filed a motion to terminate the debtors' exclusive plan filing and solicitation periods. The ad hoc group says that if the debtors' exclusivity is terminated, the group will, quote, file and pursue confirmation of a plan of reorganization that it believes will allow the debtors to emerge successfully from Chapter 11 by the end of 2019 or shortly thereafter well in advance of the 2020 California wildfire season. The ad hoc group claimed that its plan would be, quote, advantageous to virtually every stakeholder in these cases. The motion attached the ad hoc group's own plan term sheet, which features a new money investment of up to $30 billion, the vast majority consisting of an equity investment in the debtors by members of the ad hoc committee. $18 billion would be raised through an equity issuance, $4 billion would be raised through the issuance of PG&E Corporation notes, and $5.5 billion would be raised through the issuance of Pacific Gas and Electric Company, or utility, notes. The remaining amounts would be funded through insurance proceeds and cash on hand. Another centerpiece of the plan proposal. $16 billion or, quote, up to two-plus billion dollars more in certain circumstances of this new investment would be used to compensate all holders of pre-petition wildfire claims via a wildfire claims trust. The new investment would also fund a $4 billion contribution to a long-term California statewide wildfire fund and would pay in full all outstanding dip borrowings and all outstanding utility bond, term loan, and revolving debt maturing before December 2022. 
The wildfire claims trust would be the, quote, sole source of recovery for wildfire claims against the debtors. Later in the week, new legislative language that would create a state wildfire fund and allow electrical corporations to finance, quote, significant and unavoidable wildfire costs in excess of $1 billion, among other provisions, was introduced late Thursday in California State Assembly Bill AB 1054. The language was sent to legislative chiefs of staff Thursday evening by Senate President Pro Tem Tory Atkins, chief of staff, who attributed the language to the office of Governor Gavin Newsom, according to a local media report. Newsom's wildfire strike force had previously released a report laying out recommendations for a wildfire recovery fund. Newsom has said his aim is to have the wildfire bill passed by the end of the current legislative session on July 12th. Jorn's Wound Co. Holdings and certain affiliates who manufacture, distribute, and provide services related to durable medical equipment filed a prepackaged Chapter 11 case last Monday, June 24th. The debtors have a restructuring support agreement in hand with holders of approximately 86% of the prepetition first lien obligations and holders of 100% of the prepetition second lien obligations. Pine Bridge and Cetus funds, together with certain co-investors, hold 100% of the second lien obligations. The restructuring would equitize the majority of the prepetition first lien obligations, other than rolled-up dip loans, and all of the prepetition second lien obligations, and reduce the debtor's financial debt to $80 million from approximately $400. All other allowed claims would be paid in full, including general unsecured claims. At a first-day hearing on Wednesday, Judge John Dorsey, a new judge on the Delaware bankruptcy bench, granted all of the Jorn's healthcare debtors requested first-day relief, including interim approval of the debtor's proposed $80 million dip facility. All debtors informed the court that they had already received votes to accept the plan from 84% of first lien claims. The debtor's co-counsel noted that holders of 86% of those claims and holders of 100% of second lien claims have already signed the RSA. During the hearing, Judge Dorsey questioned the debtors about their engagement with and the status of the 14% of first lien claims that have not signed on. He ultimately approved the dip on an interim basis. A combined disclosure statement and confirmation hearing has been scheduled for July 25th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, on Friday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain heard argument on the motion filed by the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors in the Title III cases, seeking standing to pursue certain lien challenges in connection with the PREPA RSA, and the, quote, cross-motion filed by the PROMESA Oversight Board, seeking to effectuate its request that the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or AFAF, be named co-trustee for PREPA lien challenges. After hearing arguments on the two competing motions jointly, Judge Swain granted the UCC's motion with respect to its request to appoint a trustee under Section 926A of the Bankruptcy Code to pursue the lien challenge. But she denied the UCC's request to serve as such trustee. Instead, the judge granted the cross motion and accompanying stipulation to appoint AFF as co-plaintiff, co-trustee to pursue the lien challenges. On Thursday, Douglas Left, the FBI chief in San Juan, said in a radio spot that federal authorities are, quote, aggressively investigating allegations of undue influence in the awarding of government contracts and and money laundering. In, quote, several contexts, Left expressed confidence that they will have sufficient evidence to bring formal charges. 
Meanwhile, Governor Ricardo Rosseo defended his administration's response to the corruption allegations. Rosseo had requested Raul Maldonado's resignation on Monday after the former Commonwealth CFO alleged during a radio interview that a group of Treasury officials were engaged in organized criminal activity at the agency, and that at least one member of the group was extorting Maldonado. Rosseo also justified his appointment of Christian Sabrino to the CFO position, indicating that the appointment is well aligned with his duties as AFAF Executive Director and as the government's representative, representative to the PROMESA Oversight Board. During a Wednesday roundtable, Sabrino acknowledged that Maldonado's exit in the middle of federal investigations into potential corruption could affect Commonwealth restructuring efforts, as well as its battle for more equitable funding and treatment by the federal government, signaling that it could be seized on to, quote, try to do damage. Also this week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit affirmed Judge Swain's decision dismissing the statutory and constitutional claims asserted by AMBAC in its adversary proceeding against the Oversight Board, its members, the Commonwealth, the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority, AFAF, and certain individual Commonwealth defendants. In the Title III Court, the ERS bondholder litigation in particular, Judge Swain also entered an opinion and order on Thursday concluding that Section 552 of the Bankruptcy Code, quote, prevents any security interest resulting from liens granted in defendants' favor prior to the commencement of ERS's Title III case from attaching to revenues received by ERS during the post-petition period. Also this week, the Oversight Board filed motions seeking to stay the pending PBA litigation and pending GO-related omnibus objections pending confirmation of the Commonwealth's Plan of Adjustment. Finally, the PROMESA Oversight Board certified fiscal plans for PREPA and PRASA. This week, the saga over Windstream's master lease with Unity Group continued on Friday with the indenture trustees for Windstream's unsecured bonds moving to strike the unity lease from Windstream holding schedules, arguing that the arrangement is not a true lease and that unity's only claim is an unsecured claim against holdings. The notes trustees argue that the debtor should be barred from transferring $54 million in a month in so-called rent payments to unity. And on Friday evening, Weatherford International, the Ireland-based oil and natural gas service company, filed the plan and disclosure statement for its anticipated bankruptcy filing. The company said it intends to file for Chapter 11 on July 1st. Approximately 79% in aggregate principal amount of the senior unsecured notes have signed on to Weatherford's RSA, the company said in an 8K. Other top stories this week were, PHI suggests favorable effect from proposed Lower Health Care Costs Act, Air Methods notes declined 17 points since bill introduction. Opioid lawsuit update. Judge in National Opioid MDL sets August 6th hearing on motion by cities, counties for certification of negotiation class. Court encourages novel approach in most complex constellation of cases ever filed. New coverage. Harlan Clark seeks to refinance 2020-2021 maturities in coming months to avoid springing maturity, potential going concern qualification. Lenders organize with Jones Day, crossholders organize with Strook. And here's our Director of Credit Research, Mark Fisher, with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Karen. I am filling in today for Jim Holloway, who is out this week uh, here. I am to bring you the week ahead. 
So, as we get to set to celebrate the nation's independence, what better way than to honor one of its greatest traditions and gifts to the rest of the world? No, I'm not talking about Joey Chestnut and his 74 hot dogs. I'm referring to the bankruptcy code. On Monday, we await Chapter 11 filings from both Monotronics and Weatherford. Both companies set deadlines of July 1st to file for Chapter 11 in both in the Southern District of Texas. According to an RSA entered into on May 20th, Monotronics will reduce debt by $885 million, including a full equitization of the company's senior notes and a $100 million equitization of the company's term loan. Weatherford provided further details of its upcoming Chapter 11 on Friday when it filed its plan of reorganization and disclosure statement. According to its plan, note holders would receive 99% of reorganized equity and their pro rata share of a new $1.25 billion unsecured note. The company's pre-petition term loan and revolvers would be paid down from proceeds of a $1.75 billion debt debtor in possession facility. Also, on Monday, Hornbeck is scheduled to pay a coupon on its delayed draw term loan. In the first quarter, Hornbeck warned of its ability to continue as a going concern, saying it does not expect to have sufficient liquidity to repay its 2020 and 2021 notes when they come due. Lastly, on Monday, a second-day hearing for Fusion Connect. On Tuesday, second-day hearings from Insys Therapeutics and FTD companies. In FTD, on Thursday, the UCC objected to final approval of the debtor's proposed $94.5 million dip, arguing that its terms create, quote, the potential for administrative insolvency and impose new liens on currently unencumbered assets. Wednesday, Vistra's tender offer for its 2022 and 2024 notes expires. And that brings us to Thursday, July 4th. I hope everyone enjoys the holiday and gets some sun. Looks like Friday is a pretty quiet day, too, in the land of credit and bankruptcy, so maybe that means a four-day weekend. I hope so. I'll be back in just a few moments with Peter, but for now, kicking it back to Karen. Thanks, Mark. Now, here's Mark back again with Peter Washkowitz, head of Reorg Covenants in the U.S., to discuss covenant trends in the primary markets. Thanks, Karen. So I'm back again with Peter Washkowitz, head of our Covenants product here in the U.S. And uh, Peter and I, we're going to talk about some trends that he's been seeing in the primary market. This follows on um, a segment that we did a couple of months ago and want to keep this segment going as a, a regular feature here on the podcast. So, Peter, thank you uh, for joining us and um, want to jump right into it. Uh, focus today, what we're going to do is uh, talk about serious computer because uh, it covers not not the company itself but we want to talk about the, uh, the the document because it covers a few things that we've been talking about here um, you had highlighted this is a fairly aggressive uh, document um, with with the notes that they put out and uh, covers a, a few things that that we have discussed before and want to discuss um, now. Uh, one's on restricted payments. Another is um, ability to uh, to reclassify credit facility uh, debt, which uh, which leads to extra uh, incurrence. And then the other thing, which has been gaining steam here, is putting in provisions related to um, short selling or uh, actually net short debt activism, which um, which people have uh, have coined the phrase and. What that what that essentially means is um, it's a situation where an investor masses a position in an issuer's bond uh, at some time uh, well after an event uh, of 
default um, occurs and then retroactively claims that event of default. Uh, so the, uh, what we've seen recently are indentures including uh, language that prohibits uh, bondholders from, from taking action. We saw it in Grubhub, we saw it in Builders First Source, we saw it in Charter Communication, but then Sirius Computer actually took it a step further. So Peter, let's, let's start with, with that. Um, you know, one, did I describe net short debt activism uh, correctly? And um, two, what, what, did, um, what was in the originals in Grubhub, Builders First Source and Charter, and then what did Sirius add? Um, yeah, of course. So actually, Serious Computer, it has um, a lot of these provisions that we're going to talk about kind of, um, you know, it, they, they jive with the natural progression of, you know, sponsors trying to get one aggressive feature in a document, and then that continues to build and build until, um, you know, the new reincarnation of the provision is infinitely worse than uh, originally, um, than originally um, that had been contemplated. Um, here... We had seen in uh, Charter Communications, in uh, Builders First Source, and in Grubhub, a provision uh, in the event of default section, which said that um, holders were not permitted to um, to call an event of default on a company for any action that had happened um, over two years ago. So, um, you know, while it, you know no one has come right out and said it, um, kind of, I, I think the general sentiment is that this provision was put in. Um, after what happened with um, Aurelius and uh, Windstream, where Aurelius, uh, you know, bought a large position in Windstream and then uh, claimed that the company had violated its covenants for an action uh, two or three years ago, um, here, you know, it, it, it's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, you buy you buy you buy into the notes, and you are not able to call a, a default or an event of default for any action that the company took um, two years ago or longer. So that's where it stood for you know about two or three weeks, and then Sirius Computer comes to the market, um, and it just kind of, yeah, as you said, it kind of blew that provision out of the water. Here, there is a whole section in the uh, offering memo that goes into um, this concept called a net short seller, uh, a net short uh, note holder, and the concept is essentially if you are a net short uh, bond holder. You are not allowed to vote in any kind of uh, waiver amendment that requires any kind of consent. You're not allowed to call default, or you're, you essentially uh, kind of just waive your rights um, to kind of do anything if you are deemed a net short note holder. And, and how? Let me stop you right there. Actually, how do how does the agreement or how does the company determine if one is a net short holder? Yeah, um, you know, it seems that. Um, uh, this provision, while, you know, obviously, you know, you can tell what the intent is, um, you know, the way it goes about trying to figure out if a, if a holder is a net short uh, note holder, it, it, it seems like they kind of rush just to get something in. And for all practical purposes, I'm not really sure it's possible to kind of comply with these provisions. But essentially what it says is um, if you as the holder um, combined with all your affiliates, all your, you know, so if you're... Um, if you're at a hedge fund, if you and, you know, all the other funds that are managed under that one umbrella hedge fund um, own combined a net uh, short position in the bonds, which includes any CDS, which includes any swaps, pretty much which includes any kind of security that is linked to, in this case, serious computers notes, uh, and you aggregate the entire value of all of those holdings, and it comes out negative, uh, you are deemed a, neg a net negative uh, a net short note holder. 
And, and what it what it requires is it requires um, the fund who is buying into the notes to literally go check with each of its affiliates um, to see if they have any holdings, they have any CDS, they have any swaps, uh, anything that could be uh, quantified as a negative bet on Sirius Computer. Um, I, I can't imagine the logistical uh, nightmare this would cause. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if you know some of these funds have Chinese walls that separate uh, funds. I'm not sure if some funds want to keep their um, their strategies secret. Um, it just it, it it just seems like a very unwieldy process um, to be deemed uh, to be a net short note holder. Now, even worse than this is um, all holders of notes are under an obligation to proactively alert the trustee um, if it is a net short holder. If it votes in a, um, you know, for a proposed amendment and it is later deemed that that company, that that fund at the time it voted was a net short note holder, the issuer has the right to force you as a note holder to sell your, your, your holdings to anybody uh, the issuer wants, including itself. Interesting. And, uh, you know, talking about... Um how to determine who's um, who's involved or under what entity or under what control? Um, you know, I, I see it, it, it's interesting. They define a an ethically screened affiliate. Uh, you know, this this one I like, um, which may or may not be included in the group and an equity sc- ethically screened affiliate. It includes any affiliate that is independently managed. It's day to day matters, but not strategic direction that is established customary information screens between it and the holder. Um, and that does not direct or influence the direction of policies. So it's, they, it's, they definitely cast a wide net here as to who might be included, but then um, it, it seems somewhat there's, there's somewhat arbitrary rules here too of whether or not uh, those affiliates would be included or not be included. Yeah, and and, and the fact that um, it is up to the holders to proactively tell uh, you know the trustee that they are a net short holder, it it, it just kind of a sense, it causes a nightmare. Um, now, what what is surprising, and we'll kind of get into this um, in in a bit. Um, the, the, the provisions in series computers notes, they actually uh, were successfully amended. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not sure why, but a lot of the terms were tightened, but nothing was really tightened in these net short uh, note holder provisions. So um, it looks like those were accepted. It looks like the provisions in Builders First Source and Charter and in Grubhub were accepted. So, um, you know, it's surprising to see something kind of so new in these documents just you know, kind of go right through the whole marketing process and, uh, you know, get established without um, seemingly uh, any pushback whatsoever, or at least any that we can tell. Hmm. So that, that, that's a good transition. What was uh, changed then um, in this, which started as a pretty aggressive document and I guess became a little less aggressive document? What are some of the big uh, chunks that got changed here? Yeah, so, um, and actually, so um, in the last two days, we've seen um, Serious Computers notes and um, Allied Universal's notes um, uh, both came to market, uh, um, you know, in respect of uh, LBOs or recapitalizations. And we saw kind of investor pushback, um, and we saw these, these notes both being um, tightened. So in Serious Computer, um, one of the almost laughable provisions was. Um, that the company was allowed to incur secured debt, not just debt, secured debt, um, up to two times its entire restricted payment capacity. 
Um, you know, last time you and I spoke, Mark, um, I was I, we, had, we had discussed how some issuers were getting uh, additional debt capacity based on uh, restricted payment capacity in maybe one or two baskets. Um, here, not only would Sirius Computers get debt capacity based on every single restricted payment basket, it would get two times that capacity. Um, so that was was um, that was deleted in the updated version, which um, you know, frankly, is just not surprising. Um, another thing that um, was deleted, uh, they had had this concept in the Sirius Computer about um, if they sold a uh, minority business, which is defined as um, any unit that contributes less than 50% of EBITDA, that would not uh, constitute a change of control subject to a few provisions. Um, you know, it doesn't say significantly below 50%. So um, it looked like this provision was aimed at, you know, allowing the company to sell um, you know, uh, one of its businesses for, that, let's say, contributed 49.9% of EBITDA uh, without triggering a change of control. So that whole um, mechanism was also deleted. And then, you know, uh, there were uh, a couple uh, leverage liens, um, leverage test was tightened, a uh, two times fixed coverage test was added to access the builder basket, and um, the required amount of asset sale proceeds that were subject to the asset sale waterfall um, they, 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 they struck the provision that allowed for a step down in proceeds based on leverage tests. So, um, you know, it was kind of across the board changes, um, all for the benefit of the holder, um, which, you know, it, sure, it, it, it definitely tightened the document. It, it, you know, it's still pretty flexible, though. Thanks, Peter. You mentioned Allied Universal uh, before continuing. I, I want to talk more about it, but before continuing, I just want to note that Allied uh, is in part owned by Warburg Pincus and funds associated with Warburg Pincus hold a majority interest in the parent company of Reorg Research. Uh, so with, with that, let's continue on, um, you know, with, with Allied because you had um, the, that, that one had... Um, there, there are some changes there uh, related to um, EBITDA addbacks, uh, right? That's a topic that a lot of people are interested, particularly as it relates to to cost savings. Um, you tell us what happened there. Yeah. So, um, Allied Universal's notes, um, you know, the de- the definition of EBITDA, which is uh, not surprising, uh, permits the company to um, add back um, unlimited cost savings uh, with a twenty four month look forward period. Um, and, and, and that is very typical for kind of a, you know, a larger sponsored uh, financing. But um, the revisions to Allied Universal's notes actually um, restricts the company from using that adjusted EBITDA with the cost savings um, anywhere in the restricted payments covenant. So um, Allied's LTM EBITDA with the cost savings is $653 million. Um, without it, it's $631 million. So uh, what this did is it um, it lowered capacity in the grower baskets that were based on the greater of a fixed amount and a percent of EBITDA, and it uh, it reduces uh, or rather it increases the company's leverage and um, it, it's, and its ability to access leverage-based baskets in restricted payment covenants. Um, now, so yes, uh, those changes certainly reduce the company's ability to uh, to pay dividends. Um, but it did not make those corresponding changes in the uh, permitted investments definition, um, which, um, you know, so it still provides the company with a significant amount of uh, transferred unrestricted subsidiary capacity. 
and uh, it did nothing to uh, the debt and liens covenants, which um, which also provide a significant amount of uh, of secured debt capacity. But you know, I, I mean, it, it is interesting that in the last two days, um, you know, two sponsored financings um, have been met with investor pushback, and terms have been tightened. So I think that um, I would say the that's probably the biggest trend of the last week, and um, po- probably the the first one in in a long time that I can remember that um, that is in the favor of the note holders. Um, so, but I am certainly looking forward to seeing what happens in the second half of the year. Thanks, Peter. This has been great, and I look forward to uh, to the next time. I'm sure, um, given time, uh, issuers will continue to try and insert uh, additional egregious language. So look forward to discussing with you the next time. Karen, back to you. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Karen Lund.